And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat upon him was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with the beasts of the earth. Book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 8. There have been many related sequential coincidences all throughout my life, incidents that by themselves would have led nowhere. Statistically, the odds against the same are a related sequence of events happening to one individual are astronomically high. It is this series of incidents that have convinced me that God has had a hand in my life. I do not believe in fate. I do not believe in accidents. I cannot and will not accept the theory that long sequences of unrelated accidents determine world events. It is inconceivable that those with power and wealth would not band together with a common bond, a common interest, and a long-range plan to decide and direct the future of the world. For those with the resources to do otherwise would be totally irresponsible. I know that I would be the first to organize a conspiracy to control the outcome of the future if I were such a person and a conspiracy did not yet exist. I would do it in an attempt to ensure the survival of the principles in which I believe, the survival of my family, my survival, and the survival of the human race, if for no other reason. I believe, therefore, that a grand game of chess is being played on a level that we can barely imagine, and we are the pawns. Pawns are valuable only under certain circumstances, and are frequently sacrificed to gain an advantage. Anyone who has studied military strategy is familiar with the concept of sacrifice. Those who have seriously studied history have probably discovered the real reason we go to war on a regularly scheduled basis. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. I base that statement not on defeatism, but on the apathy of the majority of the American people. Twenty-five years ago, I would have believed otherwise. But 25 years ago, I was also sound asleep. We have been taught lies. Reality is not at all what we perceive it to be. We cannot survive any longer by hanging on to the falsehoods of the past. Reality must be discerned at all costs if we are to be a part of the future. Truth must prevail in all instances, no matter who it hurts or helps if we are to continue to live upon this earth. At this point, what we want may no longer matter. It is what we must do to ensure our survival that counts. The old way is in the certain process of destruction, and a new world order is beating down the door. I fear for the little ones, the innocents, 
who are already paying for our mistakes. There exists a great army of occupationally orphaned children. They are attending government-controlled daycare centers. There are latchkey kids who are running wild in the streets. And the lopsided, emotionally wounded children of single welfare mothers, born only for the sake of more money in the monthly check. Open your eyes and look at them, for they are the future. In them, I see the sure and certain destruction of this once proud nation. In their vacant eyes, I see the death of freedom. They carry with them a great emptiness, and someone will surely pay a great price for their suffering. If we do not act in concert with each other and ensure that the future becomes what we need it to be, then we will surely deserve whatever fate awaits us. I believe with all my heart that God put me in places and in positions throughout my life so that I would be able to deliver this warning to his people. I pray that I have been worthy and that I have done my job. From the time a person leaves its mother's womb, its every effort is directed toward building, maintaining, and withdrawing into artificial wombs various sorts of substitute protective devices or shells. The objective of these artificial wombs is to provide a stable environment for both stable and unstable activity, to provide a shelter for the evolutionary processes of growth and maturity, in effect, survival to provide security for freedom, and to provide defensive protection for offensive activity. This is equally true of both the general public and the elite. However, there is a definite difference in the way each of these classes go about the solution of problems. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human god to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human god, the politician, meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger liar, the public or the godfather? This public behavior is surrender born of fear, laziness, and expediency. It is the basis of the welfare state as a strategic weapon, useful against a disgusting public. Most people want to be able to subdue and or kill other human beings which disturb their daily lives. But they do not want to have to cope with the moral and religious issues which such an overt act on their part might raise. Therefore, they assign the dirty work to others, including their own children, so as to keep the blood off their own hands. They rave about the humane treatment of animals and then sit down to a delicious hamburger from a whitewashed slaughterhouse down the street and out of sight. But even more hypocritical, they pay taxes to finance a professional association of hitmen, collectively called politicians, and then complain about corruption 
in government. Again, most people want to be free to do things, but they are afraid to fail. The fear of failure is manifested in irresponsibility, and especially in delegating those personal responsibilities to others where success is uncertain or carries possible or created liabilities which the person is not prepared to accept. They want authority, but they will not accept responsibility or liability. So they hire politicians to face reality for them. The people hire the politicians so that the people can, one, obtain security without managing it, two, obtain action without thinking about it, three, inflict theft, injury, and death upon others without having to contemplate either life or death, four, avoid responsibility for their own intentions. Five, obtain the benefits of reality and science without exerting themselves in the discipline of facing or learning either of these things. They give the politicians the power to create and manage a war machine to, one, provide for the survival of the nation womb, two, prevent encroachment of anything upon the nation womb, three, destroy the enemy who threatens the nation womb, or destroy those citizens of their own country who do not conform for the sake of stability of the nation womb. Politicians hold many quasi-military jobs, the lowest being the police, which are soldiers, the attorneys and the CPAs next who are spies and saboteurs and the judges who shout the orders and run the closed union military shop for whatever the market will bear. The generals are industrialists. The presidential level of commander-in-chief is shared by the international bankers. The people know that they have created this farce and financed it with their own taxes, but they would rather knuckle under than be the hypocrite. Thus, a nation becomes divided into two very distinct parts, a docile subnation and a political subnation. The political subnation remains attached to the docile subnation, tolerates it, and leaches its substance until it grows strong enough to detach itself and then devour its parent. Human beings are machines levers which may be grasped and turned, and there is little real difference between automating a society and automating a shoe factory. Factor 1. As in every social system approach, stability is achieved only by understanding and accounting for human nature. A failure to do so can be, and usually is, disastrous. As in other human social schemes, one form or another of intimidation or incentive is essential to the success of the draft. Physical principles of action and reaction must be applied to both internal and external subsystems. To secure the draft, individual brainwashing, programming, and both the family unit and the peer group must be engaged and brought under control. Factor 2. Father. The man of the household must be housebroken to ensure that Junior will grow up with the right social training and attitudes. 
The advertising media, etc., are engaged to see to it that father-to-be is compliant before or by the time he is married. He is taught that he either conforms to the social notch cut out for him, or his sex life will be hobbled, and his tender companionship will be zero. He is made to see that women demand security more than logical, principled, or honorable behavior. By the time his son must go to war, father, with jelly for a backbone, will slam a gun into Junior's hand before father will risk the censure of his peers or make a hypocrite of himself by crossing the investment he has in his own personal opinion or self-esteem. Junior will go to war. Our father will be embarrassed. So Junior will go to war, the true purpose notwithstanding. Factor three, mother. The female element of human society is ruled by emotion first and logic second. In the battle between logic and imagination, imagination always wins. Fantasy prevails. Maternal instinct dominates so that the child comes first and the future comes second. A woman with a newborn baby is too starry-eyed to see a wealthy man's cannon fodder or a cheap source of slave labor. A woman must, however, be conditioned to accept the transition to reality when it comes or sooner. As the transition becomes more difficult to manage, the family unit must be carefully disintegrated and state-controlled public education and state-operated child care centers must become more common and legally enforced so as to begin the detachment of the child from the mother and father at an earlier age. Inoculation of behavioral drugs can speed the transition for the child. Factor 4, Junior. The emotional pressure for self-preservation during the time of war and the self-serving attitude of the common herd that have an option to avoid the battlefield is all of the pressure finally necessary to propel Johnny off to war. Their quiet blackmailings of him are the threats. No sacrifice, no friends, no glory, no girlfriend. Factor 5. Sister. And what about Junior's sister? She is given all the good things of life by her father and taught to expect the same from her future husband regardless of the price. Factor six, cattle. Those who will not use their brains are no better off than those who have no brains. And so this mindless school of jellyfish, father, mother, son, and daughter become useful beasts of burden or trainers of the same. So now you know. You can see every step that the elite have taken in their war to control this once great nation. You can see the steps that will be taken in the future. You can no longer pretend innocence. Your denial of the conspiracy will fall on deaf ears. This tape is part of the education that will give Americans the weapons needed in the coming months and years of hardship as the New World Order struggles to be born. Truths cannot be negated or shrugged away. The message is this. You must accept that you have been cattle and the ultimate consequence of being cattle, which is slavery, or you must prepare to fight 
and if necessary die to preserve your God-given right to freedom. History is replete with whispers of secret societies, accounts of elders or priests who guarded the forbidden knowledge of ancient peoples, prominent men meeting in secret who directed the course of civilization are recorded in the writings of all people. The oldest is the Brotherhood of the Snake, also called the Brotherhood of the Dragon, and it still exists under many different names. The Brotherhood of the Snake is devoted to guarding the secrets of the ages and to the recognition of Lucifer as the one and only true God. If you do not believe in God, Lucifer, or Satan, you must understand that there are great masses of people who do. I do not believe in racism, but millions do, and their beliefs and actions based upon those beliefs will affect me. It is clear that religion has always played a significant role in the course of these organizations. Communication with a higher source, often divine, is a familiar claim in all but a few. The secrets of these groups are thought to be so profound that only a chosen, well-educated few are able to understand and use them. These men use their special knowledge for the benefit of all mankind. At least, that is what they claim. But how are we to know since their knowledge and actions have been secret? Fortunately, some of it has become public knowledge. Secret societies mirror many facets of ordinary life. There is always an exclusivity of membership, with the resultant importance attached to being or becoming a member. This is found in all human endeavors, even those which are not secret, such as football teams or country clubs. This exclusivity of membership is actually one of the secret society's most powerful weapons. There is the use of signs, passwords, and other tools. These have always performed valuable functions in man's organizations everywhere. The stated reason, almost always different from the real reason, for the society's existence is important. It can be anything, but is usually fraternal and is found in all pressure groups wherever people congregate. The most potent tool of any secret society is the ritual and myth surrounding initiation. These special binding ceremonies have very deep meaning for the participants. Initiation performs several functions which make up the heart and soul of any true secret society. Like boot camp, the initiation into the armed forces, important aspects of human thought that are universally compelling are merged to train and maintain the efforts of a group of people to operate in a certain direction. Initiation bonds the members together in mysticism. Neophytes gain knowledge of a secret, giving them special status. The ancient meaning of neophyte is planted anew or reborn. A higher initiation is, in reality, a promotion inspiring loyalty and the desire to move up to the next rung. The goals of the society are reinforced, causing the initiated to act toward those goals in everyday life. That brings about a change in the political and social action of the member.
The change is always in the best interest of the goals of the leaders of the secret society. The leaders are called adepts. This can best be illustrated by the soldier trained to follow orders without thinking. The result is often the wounding or death of the soldier for the realization of the commander's goal, which may or may not be good for the overall community. Initiation is a means of rewarding ambitious men who can be trusted. You will notice that the higher the degree of initiation, the fewer the members who possess the degree. This is not because the other members are not ambitious, but because a process of very careful selection is being conducted. A point is reached where no effort is good enough without a pull up by the higher members. Most members never proceed beyond this point and never learn the real secret purpose of the group. The frozen member from that point on serves only as a part of the political power base, as indeed he has always done. You may have guessed by now that initiation is a way to determine who can and cannot be trusted. A method of deciding exactly who is to become an adept may be decided during initiation by asking the candidate to spit upon the Christian cross. If the candidate refuses, the members congratulate him and tell him, you have made the right choice as a true adept would never do such a terrible thing. The newly initiated might find it disconcerting, however, that he or she never advances any higher. If instead the candidate spits upon the cross, he or she has demonstrated a knowledge of one of the mysteries and soon will find him or herself a candidate for the next higher level. The mystery is that religion is but a tool to control the masses. Knowledge or wisdom is their only God, through which man himself will become God. Man's desire to be one of the elect is something that no power on earth has been able to lessen, let alone destroy. It is one of the secrets of secret society. It is what gives them a political base and lots of clout. Members often vote the same and give each other preference in daily business, legal, and social activities. It is the deepest desire of many to be able to say, I belong to the elect. The first secret that one must know to even begin to understand the mysteries is that their members believe that there are but few truly mature minds in the world. They believe that those minds belong exclusively to them. The philosophy that follows is the classic secret society view of humanity. When a person of strong intellect is confronted with a problem which calls for the use of reasoning faculties, they keep their poise and attempt to reach a solution by garnering facts bearing upon the question. On the other hand, those who are immature when confronted by the same problem are overwhelmed. While the former may be said to be qualified to solve the mystery of their own destiny, the latter must be led like a bunch of animals and taught in the simplest language.
Like sheep, they are totally dependent upon the shepherd. The able intellect is taught the mysteries and the esoteric spiritual truths. The masses are taught the literal, exoteric interpretations. While the masses worship the five senses, the select few observe, recognizing in the gulf between them the symbolic concretions of great abstract truths. The elect are given knowledge of the mysteries and are illumined and are thus known as the Illuminati, or the Illuminated Ones, the guardians of the secrets of the ages. Three early secret societies that can be directly connected to a modern descendant are the cults of Roshaniya, Mithras, and their counterpart, the Builders. They have many things in common with the Freemasons of today, as well as with many other branches of the Illuminati. For instance, common to the Brotherhood are the symbolic rebirth into a new life without going through the portal of death during initiation, reference to the lion and the grip of the lion's paw in the Master Mason's degree. The three degrees, which is the same as the ancient Masonic rites before the many other degrees were added, the latter of seven rungs, men only, and the all-seeing eye of special interest of special interest is the powerful society in Afghanistan in ancient times called the Roshaniya illuminated one there are actually references to this mystical cult going back through history to the house of wisdom at Cairo the major tenets of this cult were the abolition of private property, the elimination of religion, the elimination of nation-states, the belief that illumination emanated from the Supreme Being who desired a class of perfect men and women to carry out the organization and direction of the world, belief in a plan to reshape the social system of the world by first taking control of individual countries one by one and the belief that after reaching the fourth degree, one could communicate directly with the unknown supervisors who had imparted knowledge to initiates throughout the ages. Wise men will again recognize the Brotherhood. Can you hear the echo of the Nazi Party, the Communist Party, the extreme right and the extreme left? The important fact to remember is that the leaders of both the right and the left are a small, hardcore of men who have been and still are Illuminists or members of the Brotherhood. They may have been or may be members of the Christian or Jewish religion, but that is only to further their own ends. They are and always have been Luciferian and internationalist. They give allegiance to no particular nation, although they have used, on occasion, nationalism to further their causes. Their only concern is to gain greater economic and political power. The ultimate objective of the leaders of both groups is identical. They are determined to win for themselves undisputed control of the wealth, natural resources, and manpower of the entire planet. 
they intend to turn the world into their conception of a Luciferian totalitarian socialist state. In the process, they will eliminate all Christians, Jews, and atheists. You have just learned one, but only one, of the great mystery. I hope to show that most modern secret societies, and especially those that practice degrees of initiation, and that is the key, are really one society with one purpose. You may call them whatever you wish, the Order of the Quest, the Jason Society, the Roshaniya, the Kabbalah, the Knights Templar, the Knights of Malta, the Knights of Columbus, the Jesuits, the Masons, the ancient and mystical order of Rosai Crusai, the Illuminati, the Nazi Party, the Communist Party, the executive members of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Group, the Brotherhood of the Dragon, the Rosicrucians, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, the Open Friendly Secret Society of the Vatican, the Russell Trust, the Skull and Bones, the Scroll and Key, the Order. They are all the same, and all work toward the same ultimate goal, a new world order. Many of them, however, disagree on exactly who will rule this new world order, and that is what causes them to sometimes pull in opposite directions while nevertheless proceeding toward the same goal. The Trilateral Commission is an elite group of some 300 very prominent business, political, and intellectual decision-makers of Western Europe, North America, and Japan. This enterprise is a private agency that works to build up political and economic cooperation among the three regions. Its brand design, which it no longer hides, is a new world order. A key to the danger presented by the Trilateral Commission is its seminal piece, written for them by Harvard professor Samuel P. Huntington in the mid-70s. In the paper, Professor Huntington recommended that democracy and economic development be discarded as outdated ideas. He wrote the following as co-author of the book Crises in Democracy. We have come to recognize that there are potential desirable limits to economic growth. There are also potentially desirable limits to the indefinite extension of political democracy. A government which lacks authority will have little ability short of cataclysmic crises to impose on its people the sacrifices which may be necessary. Look at the Council on Foreign Relations. Many members, in fact the majority, never serve on the executive committees. They never go through any initiation of any kind. They are, in fact, the power base and are used to gain a consensus of opinion. The majority are not really members, but are made to feel as if they are. In reality, they are being used and are unwilling or unable to understand. The executive committee is an inner core of intimate associates, members of a secret society called the Order of the Quest, also known as the Jason Society, devoted to a common purpose. 
the members are an outer circle on whom the intercore acts by personal persuasion, patronage, and social pressure. That is how they bought Henry Kissinger. Rockefeller gave Kissinger a grant of $50,000 in the early 50s, a fortune in those days, and made dear old Henry a member of the CFR. Anyone in the outer circle who does not toe the mark is summarily expelled, and the lesson is not lost on those who remain. Do you remember the human desire to be a member of the elect? That is the principle at work. The Council on Foreign Relations has been the foremost flank of America's foreign policy establishment for more than half a century. The Council on Foreign Relations is a private organization of business executives, scholars, and political leaders that studies global problems and plays a key role in developing United States foreign policy. The CFR is one of the most powerful semi-official groups concerned with America's role in international affairs. It is controlled by an elect group of men recruited from the Skull and Bones and the Scroll and Key societies of Harvard and Yale, which are both chapters of a secret branch of the Illuminati known as Chapter 322 of the Order. The members of the Order make up the Executive Committee of the Council on Foreign Relations after undergoing initiation into the Order of the Quest, also known as the Jason Society. The Council on Foreign Relations is an offshoot sister organization to the British Royal Institute of International Affairs. Their goal is a new world order. Although it existed as a dinner club in New York, it did not take on its present power until 1921 when it merged with the Royal Institute of International Affairs and received its financial base from J.P. Morgan, the Carnegie Endowment, the Rockefeller family, and other Wall Street banking interests. The Council on Foreign Relations controls our government. Through the years, its members have infiltrated the entire executive branch, State Department, Justice Department, Central Intelligence Agency, and the top ranks of the military. Every director of the Central Intelligence Agency has been a member of the CFR. Most presidents since Roosevelt have been members. The members of the CFR dominate ownership of the press, and most, if not all, of America's top journalists are members. The CFR does not conform to government policy. The government conforms to CFR policy. I read top-secret documents while with naval intelligence that stated that President Eisenhower had appointed six of the executive committee members of the CFR to sit on the panel called Majesty 12, also known as Majority 12, for security reasons. Majesty 12 is the secret group that is supposed to control extraterrestrial information and projects. The documents stated that Eisenhower had also appointed six members from the executive branch of government who were also members of the CFR. The total membership of Majesty 12 was 19, including Dr. Edward Teller and the six members from the Jason Scientific Group. Again, whether this is true or disinformation 
depends solely upon the existence of aliens. The CFR is a secret society in that it forbids the taking of notes or the publishing of minutes of its meetings. Any member who divulges the subject or any part of any conversation or talk that took place during a meeting is terminated. The goal of the Council on Foreign Relations is a new world order. Remember, never worship a leader. If you worship a leader, you then no longer have the ability to recognize when you have been deceived. The most powerful secret organization in the world is the Bilderberg Group, organized in 1952 and named after the hotel where its first meeting took place in 1954. The man who organized the Bilderberg Group, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, has the power to veto the Vatican's choice of any pope it selects. Prince Bernard has this veto power because his family, the Habsburgs, are descended from the Roman emperors. Prince Bernhard is the leader of the black families. He claims descent from the house of David and thus can truly say that he is related to Jesus. Prince Bernhard, with the help of the CIA, brought the hidden ruling body of the Illuminati into public knowledge as the Bilderberg Group. This is the official alliance that makes up the world governing body. The core of the organization is three committees made up of 13 members each. Thus, the heart of the Bilderberg Group consists of 39 total members of the Illuminati. The three committees are made up exclusively of members of all the different secret groups that make up the Illuminati, the Freemasons, the Vatican, and the Black Nobility. This committee works year-round in offices in Switzerland. It determines who is invited to the annual meeting and what policies and plans will be discussed. Every proposal or plan that has ever been discussed at an annual meeting of the Bilderberg Group has come to pass usually within one or two years following the meeting. The Bilderberg Group is directing the quiet war that is being waged against us. How can they do it? These are the men who really rule the world. Manley P. Hall, 33rd degree Mason, probably the most renowned expert on these subjects, wrote in his book, The Secret Destiny of America. of life. The order of the quest was set up in America before the middle of the 17th century. Franklin spoke for the order of the quest, and most of the men who worked with him in the early days of the American Republic were also members. Not only were many of the founders of the United States government Masons, but they received aid from a secret and august body existing in Europe which helped them to establish this country for a particular purpose known only to the initiated few. 
The members of the Bilderberg Group are the most powerful financiers, industrialists, statesmen, and intellectuals who get together each year for a private conference on world affairs. The meetings provide an informal, off-the-record opportunity for international leaders to mingle and are notorious for the cloak of secrecy they are held under. The headquarters office is in The Hague in the Netherlands. The goal of the Bilderberg Group is a one-world, totalitarian socialist government and economic system. Take heed, as time is running short. You must understand that secrecy is wrong. Wrong. The very fact that a meeting is secret tells me that something is going on that I would not approve. Do not ever believe that grown men meet on a regular basis just to put on fancy robes, hold candles, and glad-hand each other. George Bush, when he was initiated into the skull and bones, did not lie naked in a coffin with a ribbon tied around his genitalia and yell out the details of all his sexual experiences because it was fun. He had much to gain by accepting initiation into the order, as you can now see. These men meet for important reasons, and their meetings are secret because what goes on during the meetings would not be approved by the community. The very fact that something is secret means there is something to hide. John Robeson wrote Proofs of a Conspiracy in 1798, and I believe he said it best in the following passage. Nothing is so dangerous as a mystic association, the object remaining a secret in the hands of the managers, the rest simply put a ring in their own noses, by which they may be led about at pleasure, and still panting after the secret, they are the better pleased the less they see of their way. A mystical object enables the leader to shift his ground as he pleases, and to accommodate himself to every current fashion or prejudice. This again gives him almost unlimited power, for he can make use of these prejudices to lead men by troops. He finds them already associated by their prejudices and waiting for a leader to concentrate their strength and set them in motion. And when once great bodies of men are set in motion with a creature of their fancy for a guide, even the engineer himself cannot say, Thus far shalt thou go, and no farther. should have some understanding of how, operating in secrecy and infiltrating every level of government and vital industry, including the press, the elect manipulate the people and nations of the world toward any direction desired. I hope you caught on to the fact that the secret power structure is toward a totalitarian socialist state or fascism. It is not the Nazis as they were a product of this power structure. 
It is not the Jews, although some very wealthy Jews are involved. It is not the communists, as they fit the same category as the Nazis. It is not the bankers, but they do play an important role. I also hope that you are beginning to look inside yourself to see if their reality fits. Are you getting the message? When our forefathers wrote the Constitution of these United States, they provided safeguards against despotism by providing a balance of power. The Constitution was set up to provide clear divisions of legislative, judicial, and executive powers. It was believed that this system would ensure that if one branch got out of hand, the other two would act to keep the one in check. This balance of power was predicated upon the assumption that none of the three branches could or would infringe upon the power of the others. The Constitution is clear on the functions of each of the branches. The legislative will make the laws. The judicial will interpret the law. The executive will decide policy and enforce the law. This, of course, is the simplest of explanations, but this is not a textbook on government. My intent is to acquaint you with simple basics of the balance of power so that you can then understand how it has been subverted. The legislature, made up of Congress in the form of the House and Senate, is required to publish the laws that are made, and this is done in the Congressional Record and the Federal Register. Pending or past legislation can be obtained by citizens through their congressmen or from the government printing office. Citizens cannot be held responsible for the law if it is not made available to them. It is paradoxical that the government body, most representative of the American citizen, is the one that has been the most easily subverted. Through political action committees, payoffs, pork barrel politics, professional politicians, congressmen who are members of secret societies, and through greed and fear, our representatives and senators quit representing us long ago. Congress has tremendous powers, but fails in most cases to exercise even a token amount. How is it that our legislature has allowed and at times encouraged the executive branch to write law? You probably did not know that the president and others in the executive branch of the government can and do write law. This is done in the form of presidential executive orders, national security council memos, national security decision directives, and national security directives. NSC memos were broad policy papers in the days after passage of the National Security Act. NSC memos became narrower and more specific over the years, and the name has varied. Under Kennedy, they were called National Security Action Memorandums. President Bush changed the name to National Security Directives. There is a tremendous difference between presidential executive orders, NSC memos, and national security decision directives. Presidential executive orders are listed in the Federal Register, or presidential findings which are made known to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. 
The most important difference between the presidential executive orders and all of the others, no matter what they are called, is that the others do not have to be reported, reviewed, made available to anyone, or even acknowledged that they exist. There is no oversight whatsoever that could maintain a check on the legality of these national security directives. The president and others within the executive branch have used these super-secret directives to skirt the balance of power and write law without anyone's knowledge. Justification of the president's power to write law through executive orders stems from the failure of the government to rescind the declaration of martial law during the Civil War. In effect, the United States has been under martial law ever since Lincoln's administration. These NSDs are powerful, hidden, and dangerous tools. They were prolific during the Reagan administration. Over 300 were written, with no more than 50 ever leaking out to undergo public scrutiny. Yet, most Americans have never heard of these subversive weapons. They are being used to destroy our Constitution. I believe that everyone should know about this corruption of government. Congress has turned a blind eye to these abuses of executive power. At 3.30 a.m. Saturday, August 4, 1990, the Senate made it even easier for the executive branch to subvert the Constitution and may have made George Bush the first American king. At that time, on that day, a minority of United States senators, maybe 10 at the most, passed Senate Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 1991. The bill was fraudulently introduced as a reform to prevent future incidents of the abuses brought to light during the Iran-Contra scandal. Instead of preventing future abuses, however, it virtually authorizes essentially every abuse. The bill was carefully brought to a vote by Senator Sam Nunn in the dead of night when the opposition was gone. It effectively transfers most authority over the United States government directly into the hands of the president and thus directly into the hands of the secret government. The president was given the power to initiate war appropriate public funds, define foreign policy goals, and decide what is important to our national security. In Oversight of Intelligence Activities, Title VII, Senate Bill 2834 authorizes the following. Gives the President power to initiate covert actions. This has never before been given to the President prevents Congress from stopping the President's initiation of covert actions, allows the President to use any federal departments, agencies, or entities to operate or finance a covert operation, empowers the President to use any other nation or private contractor or person to fund or operate a covert action, redefines covert actions as operations, necessary to support foreign policy objectives of the United States, a definition that is so vague and broad as to be essentially unlimited. 
for the first time officially claims the right of the United States to secretly interfere in the internal political, economic, or military affairs of other countries in direct and flagrant violation of international law, requires that the President prepare and deliver a written finding to the intelligence committees of the Congress, but allows the President to omit extremely sensitive matters and authorizes the President to claim executive privilege if Congress asks too many questions. There are no penalties in the bill for violating any of its provisions, including the provision requiring a finding. Why should there be? This bill has literally handed the power of all the branches of government to the President on a silver platter. The bill effectively prevents any oversight by anyone and allows the executive branch to skirt the law and to escape accountability. This will be done using national security directives. Either National Security Decision Directive 138 or a subsequent NSD Directive on Terrorism authorized the training of three Lebanese units for preemptive strikes. When problems arose, Director of Central Intelligence William Casey took that operation off the books and enlisted Saudi Arabian help in an attempt to assassinate the head of Hezbollah. A resulting car bombing killed about 80 in Beirut. Sheikh Fadlallah, the target, was unhurt. The United States military, along with civilian law enforcement teams, conducted joint anti-terrorist training across America. To allay public fears, the participants wore civilian clothing. NSD directives have become the de facto legislative vehicle of the national security state. It has become known through the research of Susan Fitzgerald, a research consultant at the Fund for Constitutional Government in Washington who has collected declassified NSD directives that many were released without the White House letterhead at the top of the page and without the President's signature at the bottom. This, she speculates, is to conceal the fact that the signatures on some of them would reveal that they had been made by Otto Penn, not by Ronald Reagan's own hand. That should give you a taste of what we are up against. Please understand that virtually all but a very few NSD directives still remain classified, and unless the public forces disclosure, their effect will probably never be known. Somewhere within the volumes of secret NSD directives, there is a plan to suspend the Constitution of the United States of America. The existence of this plan surfaced during the Iran-Contra hearings. Congressman Jack Brooks, Democrat from Texas, attempted to bring it into the open. When he asked Colonel Oliver North directly if North had ever helped draft a plan to suspend the Constitution, Brooks was silenced by the committee chairman, Senator Daniel K. Inouye, Democrat from Hawaii. Senator Inouye stated that the subject dealt with national security, and any questions regarding the matter could be brought up during a closed-door session. We never learned the outcome.
I would like to know who gave anyone in any branch of government with any title the right to suspend the Constitution at any time for any reason under any condition. I believe the plan to suspend the Constitution is directly tied to the underground facility called Mount Weather and to the Federal Emergency Management Agency known as FEMA. Mount Weather is so shrouded in secrecy that 99.9% .9 of Americans have never heard of it. FEMA, however, is another story. Remember Hurricane Hugo? Remember the federal agency FEMA that was sent to handle the emergency and was thrown out by the citizens because of gross incompetence? FEMA was incompetent because emergency management is just a guise for its real purpose, which is to take over local, state, and federal government in case of a national emergency. The only way FEMA could do such a thing is if the Constitution were suspended and martial law were to be declared. Therefore, its very existence is proof positive that a plan to suspend the Constitution does, in fact, exist. Just outside of a sleepy little town called Bluemont, Virginia, about 46 miles west of Washington, D.C., is an area of wilderness covering what has been called the toughest granite rock in the eastern United States. The area is surrounded by signs marked Restricted Area, and this installation has been declared a restricted area. Unauthorized entry is prohibited. Other signs state, all persons and vehicles entering hereon are liable to search. Photographing, making notes, drawings, maps, or graphic representations of this area or its activities is prohibited. Such material found in the possession of unauthorized persons will be confiscated. Internal Security Act of 1950. The installation is beneath a mountain, and its name is the Western Virginia Office of Controlled Conflict Operations. Its nickname is Mount Weather. It was ordered to be built by the Federal Civil Defense Administration, which is now the Federal Preparedness Agency. Mount Weather was designed in the early 50s as part of a civil defense program to house and protect the executive branch of the federal government. The official name was the Continuity of Government Program. Congress has repeatedly tried to discover the real purpose of Mount Weather, but so far has been unable to find out anything about this secret installation. Retired Air Force General Leslie W. Bray, director of the Federal Preparedness Agency, told the Senate Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights in September 1975. I am not at liberty to describe precisely what is the role and the mission and the capability that we have at Mount Weather or at any other precise location. In June...